Hey, y'all, thanks so much for listening to the show. Before we start, quick plug for another show, Up First. It's NPR's morning news podcast. Up First is about 12 minutes long, and it's produced and posted at 6 a.m. every weekday morning. The show makes you real smart, real fast, and I listen every day. You can hear Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, y'all, just a quick heads up before the show. This episode contains discussion of a court case involving, and you can cover your kids' ears right now if you want, involving a sex tape. We don't go into details of the tape, but we do discuss the tape's existence, and we refer to it throughout the episode. All right, that's all. Here's the show. Hey, y'all, Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Before we get to the episode today, if you're listening in Texas or have relatives in Texas, I hope you guys are all safe and making it okay through the storm out there. Hope you're safe and dry. We're hearing and seeing so many reports of people displaced by Harvey. So I'm sending good vibes that way. That is my home state, and I'm hoping that my friends and loved ones there are safe as well. If you were affected by the storm this week, we definitely want to talk to you. Drop us a line at samsanders at npr.org. We'd love to have folks from Texas on this Friday's show and just let listeners hear what you're going through. Okay, so today in our deep dive, we are going to have a conversation about journalism and the power of wealthy individuals to shape journalism. Talking to filmmaker Brian Knappenberger and NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. So I'll set it up like this. These days, you hear a lot about President Trump making comments like this. These are sick people. You know the thing I don't understand? You would think, you would think they'd want to make our country great again. And I honestly believe they don't. I honestly believe it. Trump last week in Arizona was talking about journalists or what he calls the fake news. If you want to discover the source of the division in our country, look no further than the fake news and the crooked media. which would rather get ratings and clicks than tell the truth. Most people agree that language like that does not help the cause of journalism. But there's another threat to journalism that is talked about much less. But it cannot be entirely separated from Trump or his rhetoric. Director Brian Knappenberger lays out this threat in his new Netflix documentary. It came out this summer. It's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. This documentary tells the story of the news and gossip website Gawker. You might know that Gawker went bankrupt about a year ago after the company lost a lawsuit brought by Terry Bollea. You probably know Bollea better as Hulk Hogan, the wrestler. Gawker was ordered by a Florida jury to pay Hogan $140 million in damages after the gossip website published a small portion of a sex tape. Gawker appealed the ruling. They eventually settled the case for $31 million, and they shut down. Now, got to point out, some people cheered Gawker's collapse. They saw it as a victory against uh, trashy tabloid journalism. But there is a wrinkle in this story that had a lot of people who cover the media raising alarms. One of those people is NPR's own media correspondent, David Folkenflik. David's in the Netflix documentary, so we also asked him to be part of this episode. And the reason that folks like David were alarmed is because after Gawker lost the suit, people found out that the case against the company had been funded in secret by a Silicon Valley multi-billionaire who was also a very prominent Donald Trump supporter during the campaign. Billionaire Peter Thiel. 
the man who recently revealed he bankrolled Hogan's case. Apparent payback after Gawker.com wrote an article exposing his sexuality. So, yeah, this story, it's something. And there are similar cases like this in the news right now. Stories of wealthy individuals basically going to legal war with media outlets. There's a billionaire coal magnate who's currently suing John Oliver of HBO. Former Fox News host Eric Bowling is trying to sue a Huffington Post reporter for $50 million. And there's a case being brought against the tech website TechDirt by the same lawyer who wrapped Hulk Hogan against Gawker. We cover that in this episode. So these stories and Brian Knappenberger's documentary raise all kinds of questions about the future of journalism and the role of wealthy individuals in controlling that future. That is all in this conversation. And, of course, we also talk about the president and journalism, too. With that, here's me talking to filmmaker Brian Knappenberger and NPR's David Folkenflik about the film Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. It's on Netflix now. So before we start, I want to distinguish voices because there are three dudes in this booth. So we're all going to talk a bit to let our listeners know what we sound like. David Folkenflik, media correspondent for NPR, say a few words. Uh, I am just so glad to be down here in okay. the temple of From journalism that is NPR's headquarters. Okay. It is open, it is beautiful, and uh, it's it's a delight to see you in person this time. All right. I've never heard it called a temple, but I'll take that. <laughs> and Brian Nappenberger. Welcome to D.C. Uh, do you have big plans this weekend in D.C.? Uh, yeah, we're showing the film. We're screening the film. Yeah. Um, very excited to be here. Back in the temple from uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would you ever leave L.A.? <laughs> right. <laughs> How did you guys connect? Uh, well, we reached out to David. I, we were kind of you know, admiring the way he was covering uh, the trial and, mm-hmm. and looked for a voice to help us kind of tell the story. And uh, he became a big part of the film. Yeah. So for those that haven't seen the film, they've probably heard about the case. I'm going to try to run through it briefly, but you yeah. fill in the details, both of you guys. Okay. Basically, it's a very important first amendment case and the short version is gawker the online news and gossip site they published a sex tape featuring the wrestler hulk hogan whose real name is terry balea mm-hmm. uh balea's lawyer asked gawker to take the video down they did not then they were sued the case gets bigger and bigger and there's a lot of twists and turns along the way yeah. Right. Explain the, the nuts and bolts of this case. Yeah, I mean, I was really, really interested in the Hulk Hogan Gawker case um, just by itself. I thought it was by itself really fascinating. Um, this is the first time a sex tape case like this had ever gone to trial. And, um, you know, as kind of salacious and as tabloidy as that sounded, it was pretty clear that there were some big picture yeah. First Amendment versus privacy issues at stake. And, I, you know, after I had some uh, degree of sympathy for Hogan's case. Um, Do you still have that? I still do, actually. Uh, yeah. So I, I just thought this was a really complex, it's not an easy case. Um, but, you know, these cases that are at the edges of freedom of speech aren't always easy, but they're compelling maybe for that reason. But, you know, what happened after that was really fascinating. I mean, first of all, you have the $140 million verdict against Gawker. And Which they, shut them down. Yeah. And the requirement to pay almost immediately $50 million. Um, and that was effectively the death sentence for Gawker. And then right on the heels of that, you have this revelation that Peter Thiel, the uh, sort of famous Silicon Valley billionaire, uh, first outside investor of Facebook, was actually funding Hogan's case. 
um, which was just weird at first. And then, you know, the story changed. It became about big money uh, and its ability to kind of silence critical voices. Yeah. Now, David, I know Gawker very well. They've actually written about me before, not too nicely. But for people that probably have never seen the site because they've been gone now for a little bit, what is Gawker? What were they about? And what did they represent in the culture because they were very specific and unique in what they did. So the founder, Nick Denton, always would say when asked, what drives you guys? Mm -hmm. He said, you know, it always seemed to me he had been a reporter of Financial Times um, uh, and a a, a savvy, smart guy. He said, it always seems to me journalists talk more interestingly at the bar with a drink after they've filed their stories, after they've been on the air than they ever do on the air or much more interesting than they ever do in print. And therefore, the kinds of stories that journalists find important and the insights they find important should be the things that they're sharing with the public. And it was, in some ways, there's a tabloid element to it. In some ways, for those who might remember, it's a little bit like Spy Magazine, where they're focusing on the obsessions of New York, uh, particularly finance, uh, media, fashion, publishing, yeah. uh, you know, real estate. And they're also f- focusing on the nexus of news and gossip. Yes. But it also has a really snarky, well, let, sometimes a mean-spirited voice. Let's get there. Yeah. Because the gossip, you know, if the New York Post, which can be uh, venal and snarky enough, were only page six, yeah, that would give you a feel of what Gawker could be like. Yes. It was very much saying, if we know about it and we're interested in it, you should too. You know, they used to do something called Gawker Stalker, where people would say, hey, I saw Alec Baldwin at this bar downtown. And they'd put a little uh, arrow on a map and Google Maps. And suddenly over time, they'd sort of overlay and say, well, where is it that Alec Baldwin likes to go? This is where you can go see him. Well, suddenly that becomes very invasive. Yes. It's not only paparazzi who could do it. It's some kid visiting mm-hmm. from out of town who wants to obsess about this celebrity or that celebrity. They really went after the sexuality of a lot of New York famous people. They outed some people. So they, they would, went after Anderson Cooper, who later, you know, attested he was gay, but did it kind of quietly, I think, in a very, you know, dignified way. On the other hand, they also did a lot of real reporting. Oh, they totally did. And what they I liked, broke some stories. What I liked was they did it from the outside in. They were never going to be the people with the great access to the mm. top executives, to the to the handlers, to this and that. So they just kind of blew through that. And as a result, they did real reporting. Some of their stuff on Bill O'Reilly and his personal life turned out to, in some ways, shed a certain light on what we have learned about yeah. him or believe we've learned about him in recent months about his attitudes toward women. And also Bill Cosby. Yeah, they Bill covered Cosby. Bill Cosby and, very and well. Absolutely. So then, okay, we have an outlet like Gawker. Mm which in some ways is not the most upstanding of newsrooms. But over the case of, throughout the course of your documentary, Mm. you say that their publication of a washed out wrestler's sex tape is actually the newest and latest frontier testing the First Amendment. Well, I think that, that where it gets really disturbing to me is is later when you have the kind of secretive maneuverings of Peter Thiel. Um, as I said before, that, you know, I have some sympathy for Kogan's case. Um, and I think that, he, you know, he has a legitimate case. I think without the Peter Thiel money, this probably settles. So I think that's when it gets kind of disturbing And how much did he pour into this case? Well, we don't know. Uh, Nick Denton says they spent their side spent uh, between something like twelve to fifteen million huh. uh, in this case. So you can assume the same or a bit more uh, on the teal side. 
So, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't sort of pick this because it was an easy. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. This is a tough one. Yeah. And, and I, think, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I found it so compelling. Um, and it just gets clearer to me when you have this sort of secretive element. The, the second story that we have in, in the film is the story of Sheldon Adelson secretly purchasing the Las Vegas Review Journal. Tell um, folks who he is. So Sheldon Adelson is the uh, casino magnate, uh, owner of the Palacio and uh, the Venetian and, and uh, plenty of casinos in Macau, 17th, uh, I believe, richest person in the world. The Las Vegas Review Journal, uh, it's an important paper in Las Vegas and in the West, uh, was purchased by somebody. The, all of the employees were called uh, together for this announcement, and they naturally asked, who, who's our new owner? Like you would do if you were in any business, oh, really, yeah. uh, but particularly the newspaper business. Um, and they were told, uh, don't worry about it. By some guy who totally looked like he was just there as like... He looked like a front man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looked like he's clearly not the person who bought it. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, so it was a strange situation. They wanted to find out more. They got to work and, and, and figured it out. The other big plot point that we should mention here was that a longtime reporter at the Las Vegas Review Journal, he written a lot of stuff critical of Sheldon Adelson and his business dealings in Vegas. That reporter, named Robert Smith, he had actually been sued by Adelson for libel in the past, which is his own crazy story. But anyway, Smith was told after Adelson bought the paper that he couldn't write about Adelson anymore. I mean, it seems to me there are interesting distinctions and commonalities in these these two first chapters of, of three that, that appear in the documentary. Yeah. And I say this as somebody who didn't participate in the creation of it, just, you know, talk to you for it. Yeah. But, you know, with Gawker, it's not an easy case because uh, it's a problematic website and yet you're there are times you're really rooting for it and there are times they do some terrific stuff and you have to in your mind figure out how to best disaggregate that really in some ways the question becomes on that one uh does this deserve a death sentence yeah and do we allow somebody with such celebrity as terry balea to be able to deploy a sympathetic circumstance to destroy another news organization and then I mean, and let's not forget, you know, folks at Gawker are very much of the belief that uh, Balea was much less concerned about the invasion of his privacy and his personal hurt, which I think from a human level would be very understandable. Yeah. And more about disclosures of things he had said on some of these tapes and videos. Some of these tapes. He used the N-word. He had done other things, you know, that, that, that came out. And then on top of that... This, you know, this very secretive billionaire is orchestrating this from from a continent away. That's a thing. When you go to Las Vegas, you have a guy who's all of the things that Brian said. He's also one of the top handful of donors to the National Republican Party. Yeah. He is the most essentially powerful and influential person in the home state of this news organization in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of wrinkles to this. Yeah. And he is a guy that they've had to cover for years yeah. mm-hmm. for a paper whose editorial page has always been somewhat sympathetic to his interests. So it's a, how do you say it? It's, you know, uh, democracy dies in darkness, we're told by the, the Washington Post these days, yeah. right? Well, this is a complete lack of light. Yeah. I want to I wanna unpack Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. He is such an interesting character. And I thought I knew all about him. <laughs> I see your movie and there's even more layers to this guy. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, you know, I, I think he's always been, for people who've seen the show uh, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. uh, he was portrayed as P- Peter Gregory was the sort of fictionalized version of him on that show. Mm-hmm. He's a hugely successful venture capitalist, um, uh, one of the co-founders of PayPal, one of the uh, the first outside investor of Facebook. He's had some eccentric beliefs. One is that college isn't necessarily a useful thing. And he funds scholarships for kids to not go to college. So he funds scholarships for kids not to go to college and to sort of start, which has some interesting um, 
I, maybe I have some interesting positive aspects of it, uh, but uh, he clearly has a uh, belief that college is a is. Well, all of this seems to me like forgive me for stepping yeah, yeah, out yeah. here, but it if you look at it as it's unpacked in the movie and as we learn more over time, uh, he's a guy who seems to believe in things that will allow elite figures to live on a higher plane at a longer time for better health than the rest of the world. Like, that's what he's interested in. A few examples. He was rumored to believe that older people should be infused with younger people's blood. He wanted to start a colony of islands away from any government intervention or oversight. That's right. He's a little bit out there. Even for a time where we have public people who say, yeah, I believe in what Ayn Rand had to say. Mm -hmm. He's late at a a sort of like you've taken a centrifuge of these folks, whipped it around, and he's in the purest version, right? Like he's he's a really strong belief in this stuff. And he's also a strong believer in the idea of strong men. And he ends up being a Donald Trump supporter. And that's another layer of Peter Thiel. Yeah. He speaks at the RNC in favor and support of Donald Trump. Yeah, he's not sure democracy is the is the right way to, to govern. Uh, typically, and a lot of his writings have disparaged the notion of democracy. Yeah. So he ends up secretly funding uh, mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan in this trial. And the big question is, why is he mad at Gawker? Uh, Gawker's written about him a lot. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is he mad because Gawker has written unfavorably about on his business interest, or is he mad because Gawker outed him? Yeah, you're asking Do we me. Know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, presumably, one of the things he said uh, publicly is that they uh, and they famously outed him on their pages yeah. uh, eight or nine years ago in a in an article that Peter Thiel is totally gay. People, which is actually um, that's a crazy headline. That's a crazy that headline. Is that's a Gawker that is just, headline. That's a Gawker headline. <gasps> I mean, it Man. wasn't on Gawker.com, but it was a Gawker. It was on Ballywag, which is what the, their blog for Silicon Valley. for Silicon yeah. Valley. Yeah, but as crazy as that headline is, you know that it was a substantive article. That article was about bias and venture if, capital in if, Silicon Valley. And if you're to out someone, it is one of the most thoughtful essays and pieces that I've seen Absolutely. in doing that. Even, yeah. as, even as he was a guy who, like Anderson Cooper and Shep Smith, who I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I'm of the belief that you have to have a really high bar to pass if you're doing something without their yeah. acquiescence. Yeah. I just, as a society, I just think it's still a thing where people, you know, it's a private part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And they were couching it in terms of how it could affect the business interests of a major, you know, you know, they, they had reasons to do it. It was thoughtfully done and it was not, mm-hmm. it was not vicious. And yeah, it's done no, by guys very thoughtful. Uh, very sympathetic. To yeah, issues. Owen Thomas, the writer, who's also gay, yeah. um, basically said more power too. And and I think that's Nick Denton's position on this is that you know, look, if the if the most powerful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley is gay, then young gay kids should should know that they should have role models. Um, you know, when you talk to Nick about this, you know, I think he's angry that if if you see a profile in New York Times or Bloomberg Business Week or something, the first thing the reporter will do will say, "Well." Tell me about your family. Tell me about your spouse. And Let's talk about their if, wife and their kids. If that person's gay and the interviewer knows that they're gay, somehow it's off limits. I think that genu- I think there's a genuine part of Nick uh, Denton that is is angry about that. Yeah, he, you know, there is also, by the way, just to be clear, a case, and there's some, as I understand it, former Gawker writers who mm-hmm. believe this. That he was actually less upset about it being outed, which is yes. you know, things that we were able to, to report on, yeah. and more concerned about certain coverage of his business about his business that had nothing to do with his sexuality. Totally. Now that may be true, but nonetheless, at the time that they outed him, he effectively said, "You know, I'm going to be after you. <laughs> you know, I'm going to yeah. come after you guys." Yeah. It just he didn't telegraph that it would come in this form or yeah. that it would be existential threat to yeah. their existence. Yeah. All right, time for a quick break. We'll have more with Brian Knappenberger and David Folkenflik right after this. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from thinkaboutyoureyes.com. Seeing their baby brother for the first time, being front row at an aquarium, experiencing the magic of a shooting star. So much of what our children learn comes through their eyes, yet one in four have an undetected vision problem. Take care of the gift of sight with yearly exams from an eye doctor. Go to thinkaboutyoureyes.com to find one and make an appointment today. Support also comes from Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I watched this case like everyone else did. Listened to um, to David's reporting on it. And when the verdict came out and Gawker was forced to pay out and they were forced to shut down, I thought it was over. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, Hulk Hogan gets his money. Gawker's gone. Oh, well. But your film makes the case that there are a lot of other issues at play here that could affect the rest of the industry. Talk mm-hmm. briefly about how what happened in this Gawker case could affect places like NPR or The Times or whoever else? Well, I think the, the tactics that you see Peter Thiel using here to go after Gawker don't have to, they could be used for any organization, right? Any news organization. There's no reason that they couldn't. There's nothing specific to Gawker here. And so what we've seen is other cases where very rich people have gone after uh, news organizations. And, and, you know, news organizations are uh, vulnerable. You know, a lot of them have found their funding and their financial backing gone and are struggling in that way. So um, even if those lawsuits don't win, they still could be a drain, enough of a drain on, on, the, on the resource. Of it. And you're seeing this now. In fact, the attorney that Peter Thiel was using, Charles Harder, mm-hmm. is now going after Tech Dirt. Tech Dirt is a, a is another Silicon Valley site, does mm-hmm. great reporting. Um, and they're being uh, sued by Charles Harder on behalf of another uh, gentleman named Shiva Ayudarai, who uh, claims to have invented email. Uh, both he? Gawker. Well, both Gawker and uh, Tech Dirt have written articles that saying, no, he didn't. Um, and a Washington Post article that profiled him as the inventor of, of email had to be uh, almost entirely uh, Ooh, redacted. It was, it was one incredible uh, correction. It, it was an incredible really. correction. So, uh, yeah. So that case settled against Gawker at the same time as the Hulk Hogan case. But Charles Harder is still going after Tech Dirt. Tech Dirt is as great as they are. They're small, yeah. and they're being sued for $15 million. Yeah. So they're fighting for their existence right now. You know, Gawker was actually an interesting case of a mid-sized media company where they had figured out a way not to be tiny, like not a five-person outfit, but also not be the size of the Boston Globe, New York Times, NPR, yeah. or anything like that. Uh, and they had succeeded financially, mm-hmm. basically, in write, writing things out. They were never going to be huge, but mm-hmm. they had figured out how to make this work. Some of it was on the backs of paying their workers for a long time. Very, very low little, wages. But nonetheless, like they were figuring this out. This became existential. One of the, you know, this isn't only about whether the most honorable 
news organizations are at stake because places evolve and things have worth even in their imperfection, right? Yeah. Uh, the New York Times effectively got WMDs wrong, you know, and that they're that, still that, around. That they're still around, mm-hmm. and I think that's good. You know, they're they're mortal endeavors. We're all human beings in here. Uh, you know, I think also news organizations get to be held accountable. That's okay. Teal and his folks decided to make this existential. One of the things they did, I mean, they hid the fact that they had a multi-billionaire behind them. Yes. So that, that meant that they had a guy who could just play it out forever. Yeah. And they also the, dropped a certain charge, they dropped right? Talk about ch- that. So there was a key moment, and it seems minor and it's enormous, it seems to me, mm-hmm. where they dropped one of the charges uh, filed in the civil suit, Balea's team, financed by Teal, uh, against Gawker. And the reason that they did that was it allowed the insurance companies who were stand behind you for libel and certain other kinds of journalistic cases they got to, to take away. a walk. Yeah. And so when they take a walk, that's a problem. Well, let's think about a case involving a guy who's at the center of the third chapter of Brian's film, which is Donald J. Trump. As a private citizen, he sued Timothy O'Brien, then with the New York Times, uh, for a book that O'Brien had written about him in which he talked about Trump's essentially wildly inflated claims of his personal wealth. And he sued O'Brien for billions, that's right, billions of dollars, which O'Brien as a reporter for the New York Times didn't happen to have. Didn't have it. Right. So the New York Times takes on the case and the insurance companies takes on the case. And uh, under oath uh, during depositions, Trump admits that he sued him because he wanted to make it hurt for O'Brien. That's basically why I sued him. In, in in essence, actually, Trump ended up not only losing, but having to pay Brian's costs and you know, yeah. other fees and other things. But he just wanted to cause pain to a Brian. If he had figured out a way to drop a charge that meant that the insurers weren't on the hook and those insurers decided to take a walk, and if the Times decided to say, you know, he's suing him for a book he wrote, that's not something he did on our imprimatur. We're not responsible mm-hmm. for your, you know, he could have e- either taken down the Times for billions or taken the reporter out forever. You know, that's a threat. And it's not just, well, one guy went after one place that's published some things that we think is seedy and therefore uh, we don't like it and we can turn our heads away from it. We have to say this is an unusual case. It may not, it's in a Florida court. It's not binding for the country and it, it may have some very unusual wrinkles in it. But we have to be conscious of these things because they have implications of how people are going to operate. You know, it's, it's an interesting time because mm-hmm. the threats that you both are speaking about clearly exist. Um, Donald Trump has changed the way that the entire country looks at the media. Mm -hmm. But it's also, in some ways, a good time for journalism. Mm -hmm. You're seeing outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times have record web traffic and subscriptions. NPR's ratings have never been higher. Uh, A lot of national news outlets are thriving in the era of Trump decrying us as fake news, right? And so... For people that see that and say, well, I don't really see a threat to journalism. They're all still there. How do you import the severity of this threat against journalism to folks that might not be inclined to think it exists? Well, you're right that there's a, you know, th- there's, a, there's a kind of a, a silver lining on, on what's going on with Trump and the media. I, I do think that a number of news organizations have kind of stepped up to the challenge. You know, there's there's legitimate criticism of the media that perhaps has gotten too corporatized, too cozy with power, that uh, for too long it traded softball stories for access to power and celebrity. 
And, you know, something about Trump has woken it up. And uh, put a fire under us. And put a fire under us. But, you know, look, why is it um, still of concern? I mean, if you think about communities across the United States, you know, I think about this in local communities across the United States who have lost a lot of their sort of local newspapers that cover their local elections and city council meetings and all that. But that's a different issue, right? They just don't have people buying enough papers and they're losing money. It's the same. Yes. I think think what's happening is you have – uh, journalism in a very vulnerable state. It's being uh, attacked in all of these ways, including now by the president of the United States who uh, and by billionaires. There's a lot to be concerned about. There's a good, this famous line from the, the Tom Stoppard who says, you know, people do terrible things to each other, but it's worse in places where everybody's in the dark. You know, I think most journalists don't even think of Trump as the enemy at all. I think they think of it as the key player in uh, the current times in in a completely unexpected way, of course, but it's a it's a completely we're in a time of crisis and it's a completely fabricated or conjured up crisis. Like there's no need to be in a state of crisis and running around it all the time now. The economy is doing decently. We are not ramping up our wars. Like we don't have to be in this state of absolute tumult. And it's really the locus is really in the White House, mm-hmm. and it is a guy who is inherently given off. Uh, explicit and implicit signs Mm -hmm. that he does not believe in the role of accountability that press plays. Uh, He does it in the way that he uh, disdains uh, practices like releasing information like his tax forms. Uh, He does it in the way in which he routinely undercuts his own previous statements and the credibility of everyone who works for him, including very senior officials like an attorney general, the vice president and others. Uh, and he does it by in his rallies, ones that you attended, Sam, yes. you know, basically saying, hey, if anybody beats up a protester, beats up a reporter, those guys are our are, are enemies and I'll pay for your legal bills. Yeah. But also he's the same guy that frequently throughout the entire campaign would call up reporters at the Times and the Post mm-hmm. and give them scoops. I don't I, I totally get that. Uh, even people like Jake Tapper, who I think uh, really emerge as one of the brightest figures in television journalism mm-hmm. for doing good journalism. He'll say that. And it's true. You got to give Trump credit. He sat there and he took questions. That's fine. But he did that because it, it served his purpose. And be, he did that right until just before, if you remember, the convention. And then he became a much more Republican figure. Uh, he became a much more Fox figure. And, you know, he he also basically... Uh, he stopped pretending that he was going to be giving out all the stuff he's going to give. But, you know, the day that uh, Republicans pulled their first big attempt to repeal Obamacare, he called the Post reporter with that scoop before the GOP made it public. I can't wrap my head around how he continues to do the song and dance around the media. The only way that we can think about Donald Trump is to think about him. It's, it's, It's like the prom date theory. Well, well, I'm never, what is, is the prom date theory? Well, it's the, the basic be home mo- by midnight because my mom is really strict. No, is that- <laughs> this is this is my theory about so many things is that you find something appealing if somebody else has gotten it or wants it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you want to ask so and so to the prom as long as somebody else has expressed a desire or asked first because that validates that. Mm-hmm. In this case, he wants the validation. Mm-hmm. He wants to be asked. He wants to be the center of attention. I mean, he trashes the Times and the Post, but nobody more desires. The ability totally. to be on the front page totally. of the time, the post, yes. uh, the morning uh, uh, Today Show, uh, 60 Minutes. He wants all of those things. He wants that validation. Yeah. So he wants to attack the independence of the press, which is what Brian gets at uh, and what we've seen play out around us. And at the same time, he wants to bask in its adulation. That is not a guy affirming its accountability role. That's a guy saying, I want yeah. you to to give me your light Working and let me seem yeah, like right. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm the chief player here. Yeah, yeah. We got a few more minutes. My big question for you guys 
So you lay out a lot of threats that the press is facing right now from inside the White House, from rich and powerful people across the country, all kinds of threats that we face. Mm -hmm. What are some fixes for that, specifically in these crazy legal waters that outlets like Gawker find themselves in? Well, I think there's laws can be changed in terms of accountability and the and the secrecy uh, behind these kinds of things like litigation finance. I think there's a so you're saying make that public. Yeah. Okay. There's a discussion to be had about shield laws. Um, there's, uh, you know, I think that the main thing I think is, you know, journalism has to find a kind of new model. So you know, support journalism that you love that you think is doing a great job. And um, stand up for the concept of it, you know, both stand up for the people that are doing it, doing well, mm. and realize that there's an important role for journalism and that you, we have to kind of preserve the, the, the concept itself. Yeah. How do uh, we fix it, David? How do we fix it? Well, we're in an interesting moment right now uh, because as we're talking, uh, you're seeing growing apprehension in Washington even among figures who have been sympathetic and supportive of the president mm -hmm. for how he's conducting himself. Now, that basically doesn't have to deal with the press per se. It's just literally he's slashing through every norm uh, and every practice. that From his smartphone. From his smartphone. And he's shredding statements of senior figures uh, for him all the time. And, you know, they don't know what to do about it. You know, we may have a weakened president if this continues, or we may have possibly an increasingly powerful president. You know, with, with even greater powers, if he's able to surmount all these these seeming legal mm -hmm. and political challenges to how he's operating, uh, so you know, it may be that we went through this period of turmoil and we kind of vomit out the idea, that, you know, and dispel the idea that this is how you actually think about the press. I do think that there's an issue, as as the scholar Jay Rosen, who appears in the piece and others have pointed out, that there's a question about the demand for things like fake news, the real fake news. Mm. I think there's a demand right now for information that's not uh, credible because it soothes us or it riles us, which sounds contradictory, but it often does both. Yeah. And I think that's undermining people. You see people, you know, the Gawker case, you'd see people take sides, mm. you know, and it's partly they take sides for a celebrity, but they're happy to see the press uh, beaten up. And then you see people who have affinities for the press just say, well, there is no cause for sympathy for, for Hulk Hogan, for Terry Bollea. He's, he's a human comic strip character and we shouldn't care. But he's a human. But he is mm -hmm. like that strips him of humanity. And I think that's wrong, too. You know, the current age requires more of us. We have so much more available to us, but mm -hmm. it requires us to take more responsibility for our diet, yeah. you know, just yeah. as it does for what we eat. A lot of people are rallying to NPR and The Washington Post, New York Times and other places. But there are a lot of other people who I think are, are happy to dismiss us and, and cheer because it's it's part of taking it's a tribal thing. Right. It's yeah. Part of taking sides. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got to run. We got to close it up. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you both. Thanks for having me in. Of course. All right. Filmmaker Brian Knappenberger, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Uh, check out the documentary. It's called Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. It's on Netflix now, and it is a gripping watch. Uh, we'll be back with our wrap on the news and culture of the week on Friday. For that episode, do not forget to send me a recording of your voice sharing the best thing that happened to you all week. Email the audio to samsanders at npr.org. Also, if you're in Texas, one, please stay safe, sending good vibes your way. And two, if you want to talk about the storm and its impact on you and your life and your neighborhood, uh, email us too. Again, that's samsanders at npr.org. And by the way, one last request. Do this for me, guys. Please, if you're enjoying the show, and I really hope you are, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find the show, and I just like seeing reviews of it because it helps us know how to make the show better and what you guys like. All right? 
All right. Until Friday, I'm Sam Sanders. Thanks for listening. Talk soon.